And now a word from GSK. Respiratory syncytial virus, better known as RSV, has been in the news a lot lately, and RSV season is fast approaching. RSV infection can put older adults at risk, including those with certain underlying conditions. But vaccination with RxV, respiratory syncytial virus vaccine, adjuvanted, can protect adults aged 60 years and older. RxV is a vaccine used to prevent lower respiratory disease from RSV in people 60 years and older. Arexvi is proven through a clinical study to be over 82% effective in preventing lower respiratory disease from RSV and over 94% effective in those with asthma, diabetes, COPD, chronic heart failure, advanced liver or kidney disease, or any chronic respiratory or pulmonary disease. Arexvi does not protect everyone and is not for those with severe allergic reactions to its ingredients. Those with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. The most common side effects are injection site pain, fatigue, muscle pain, headache, and joint pain. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist to see if Orexvi is right for you and learn more by calling 888-Orexvi9 or by visiting orexvi.com. That's A-R-E-X-V-Y dot com. RSV? Make it Orexvi. Over the past year, a particular strain of the flu has been making headlines around the world. Some types of bird flu exist harmlessly in wild birds, but a new highly contagious strain is fatal to chickens and it's spreading around the U.S. New reports from January document millions of infected birds in nearly every state. Despite its name, this bird flu has not stayed in birds. It's known as H5N1, and in the U.S. alone, it's been found in bobcats, bears, dolphins, foxes, skunks, and otters. And as the list of infected mammals keeps growing, humans are getting nervous. Because bird flu sometimes does make its way to people, and when that happens, it can be deadly. So today, we're going to try to understand where the flu comes from, how it jumps from species to species, and what this all means for humans. Also, we'll hear an account from the front lines of influenza research. And by front lines, I mean a little island in the North Atlantic that's full of seals. You've got a bunch of scientists all geared up in our field gear, and we are crawling through army crawl style through the the dunes to sneak up on a seal pup. It can be somewhat comical if you didn't know what was going on. I'm Jacob Goldstein. This is Incubation. Okay, you ready? Let's talk about viruses. Okay, let's talk about viruses. For today's episode, I called up David Quammen. He's a journalist who writes about ecology and evolutionary biology, and he wrote a book called Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. David has spent years tracking viruses like the flu across animal species, and he's documented their spillover into the human world. I'd like to talk about when people figured out that flu was a disease of birds. Yes, there is a wonderful, eminent influenza scientist and physician named Rob Webster, originally a New Zealander who has been at St. Jude's Memorial Children's Hospital for most of his career, studying influenza. And back in the 1960s, I think it was 1967, he and a friend of his were walking along a beach in Australia, and 
they found a bunch of dead birds lying on the beach. Shearwaters. What killed all these birds all of a sudden? Well, then they wondered whether, I don't know, could it have been maybe an influenza? Maybe we should do a little research on that. So they went to their boss and they said, we want to go to the Great Barrier Reef and live on an island for a few weeks and sampled dead birds and any birds that we can catch and see if we can find influenza. And their boss happened to know that uh, Webster was a, a passionate sport fisherman. And he looked <laughs> at these two young guys and he says, you guys are delusional. Webster told me that verbatim. He said, this, yeah. this man looked at them and said, you guys are delusional if you think I'm going to pay for you to go and live on an island off the Great Barrier Reef uh, and fish. But, but they persist. And eventually they get a small stipend for the WHO. So they go out there and do this research and they find flu in birds. And from that effort... And a lot of research that followed after it, but thanks largely to Rob Webster and his friend, we know now that all of the human influenza A type viruses that infect us come from wild aquatic birds. Huh. And to ask sort of the dumb question, why is that important? Why is that a big deal? Well, with any sort of viral threat that's getting into humans periodically, dramatically, murderously. It's important to know how. How is that getting into humans so we can prevent them from getting into us? So let's talk about H5N1. Uh, it's been around for a while, right? This version of H5N1 has been around since 1996. It was found killing some birds. And then in 2005, it killed a, a large number of bar-headed geese at a place called Qinghai Lake in western China. From there, um, it has gone from infecting uh, wild birds to infecting domestic birds and then infecting mammals. I want to just talk for a minute about the influenza virus. Um, it's, it's interesting, right? It's interesting how it, how it works, how it functions. So just like, tell me about the influenza virus. The influenza viruses belong to a family of RNA viruses, meaning that their genome, the little information molecule inside the protein capsule of the virus, is written in the molecule RNA rather than DNA. DNA is the famous double helix molecule. It's very stable. It has self-repairing mechanisms. And so when it copies itself, it corrects its mistakes. It doesn't make very many mistakes. When RNA, a single strand of RNA, copies itself, it makes a lot of mistakes. RNA viruses evolve quickly and are capable of jumping from one kind of host into another. The influenza viruses also have another trick. They have segmented genomes. So their genomes, 12 to 14,000 letters of RNA, is segmented into eight segments that pop apart between one and the next. So imagine an engine, a locomotive, and six boxcars and a caboose. And that's your influenza virus. So, so now we have this virus, the flu virus, and 
the whole genome can change quickly and does change quickly because it's RNA rather than DNA. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, you have this uh, sort of segmented, you know, rail car-like nature that allows for a kind of rapid change as well. And that rapid change is accomplished by swapping of pieces with other viruses. If two different particles of influenza replicate themselves in the same cell at the same time, then there is this event, this trick called reassortment that can occur. And that reassortment is really bad for, say, our immune system, right? It means suddenly we've never seen anything like this one before. That's right. That's right. And so why does a virus get called H5N1? The numbers refer to the fact that there are you know, 15 or 20 variations of the possible H segment and a number of other possible variations of the N segment. So you have H5N1, H2N9. And the H and the N are proteins that are on the surface of the virus, right? And so that our immune system recognizes. That's correct. Uh So, okay, so we have this virus. It has this ability to change very quickly. Um, How does it go from species to species? We know that it's largely in birds. How How does it move among species? Well, by by contact is the first answer to that. That's the ecology side. A wild bird uh, becomes infected with uh, an influenza, let's say a duck, a wild duck. Rob Webster says the duck is the Trojan horse when it comes to bird flu, <laughs> avian influenza. I like it. I like, I like a semi-mixed metaphor. What he means by that is it's the secret carrier. When a duck becomes infected with avian influenza, at least many types of avian influenza, it doesn't show symptoms. It doesn't fall Uh dead. It continues to migrate and congregate with other birds, carrying the virus and pooping it out into, into lakes, ponds, streams, wherever it goes, depositing this little gift of virus. And other birds then are susceptible to that virus when they pick it up. And then if your chickens and your geese start to fall dead, uh, you might think about that Trojan horse in the form of a duck that came through and brought that virus. Okay, so now, so now it's gone from bird to bird. How does it go from bird to mammal? A virus such as influenza gets into animal cells by attaching to particular receptors on the surface of those cells. In birds, it attaches to a particular kind of receptor. Humans have a different kind of receptor. Pigs have both the bird-like and the mammalian receptor. So Uh a pig can become infected with a virus that is adapted to attaching to the bird receptor. And then Uh while it's multiplying in the pig, that virus can evolve to be able to attach also to the mammal-type receptor. When it comes out of the pigs, it's capable of infecting humans. Uh Aha. So it's easy for a pig to get bird flu. Uh, And pigs are are this sort of mixing vessel, basically, where bird flu can mutate into a flu that can infect other kinds of mammals, including humans. That's right. Okay, so... I think now we have a really good base of knowledge to talk about H5N1, Mm -hmm. Uh, this uh, 
strain of flu that is currently infecting birds. First, tell me the scope of it. Like, how, how much is it infecting birds? How many birds is it infecting? Well, this version of H5N1, uh, for the last couple of years, has been circling the planet. It's probably killing millions of wild birds. And if and when it gets into those bird species, wild bird species, that are endangered, like the whooping crane with 900 individuals on the planet, uh, or the California condor with maybe 300 individuals, it has the potential to knock those out entirely to drive both of those species over the brink of extinction. You've described what's happening with H5N1 as a kind of pandemic that is happening right now. Yes, for birds, for wild birds, it's a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and for domestic birds, it's a pandemic. If you have a million chickens on a poultry farm and the bird flu comes in by way of a duck that happens to come and, and poop in their water trough and some of those chickens get infected, that virus can spread through those million chickens very quickly, which means billions and billions and trillions and trillions of viral particles replicating. Each time the virus replicates itself, there's a potential for it to make mistakes, to have a mutation, a random mutation, and several of those random mutations can create a virus that can infect the guy who's cleaning out the cages. So the fact that we have 33 billion chickens on this planet at a given moment means that there is this huge petri dish for the, for the encouragement of evolution in the bird flu virus. Millions of birds in poultry operations around the world have either died or been killed preventively to stop the spread of this um, this virus in commercial operations. And infections of people have been, thankfully, rare so far, correct? Yes, they have been rare, right. And crucially, there's no evidence that it can go from person to person. It just goes from bird to person when people are working very, very closely with birds. So right? far, yes. That is being watched very carefully, although probably not as carefully as it should be watched. There is such a randomness such a, an element of randomness involved in influenza evolution that um, you, can, you can know what its capacity to evolve quickly is, but you can't say what's going to happen tomorrow. Plainly, the terrible day that we hope will not come is when there is demonstrated human-to-human -human transmission of H5N1. Short of that... What should I look out for? Like, as a person who wants to be well-informed about this, like, what's the signal that I need to, you know, buy some bottled water and lock the door? Well, one of the signals that is increasing in volume is the infection of mammals with H5N1 bird flu. So when you see another story about, well, bird flu just killed another porpoise, uh, bird flu just killed another dolphin, another seal. That is a, a warning alarm, and the more it happens, the, the louder the alarm gets. We'll be back with more in just a minute.
And now a word from GSK. RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, can put older adults at risk, including those with certain underlying conditions. Fortunately, vaccination is available. Orexv, respiratory syncytial virus vaccine, adjuvanted is a vaccine used to prevent lower respiratory disease from RSV in people 60 years and older. Vaccination with Orexv is proven through a clinical study to be over 82% effective in preventing lower respiratory disease from RSV in adults 60 years and older and over 94% effective in those with asthma, diabetes, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, chronic heart failure, advanced liver or kidney disease, or any chronic respiratory or pulmonary disease. Orexv does not protect everyone and is not for those with severe allergic reactions to its ingredients. Those with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. The most common side effects are injection site pain, fatigue, muscle pain, headache, and joint pain. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist to see if Orexv is right for you and learn more by calling 888-OREXV-9 or by visiting orexv.com. That's A-R-E-X-V-Y dot com. RSV, make it Orexv. My guest for the second half of the show is Wendy Purrier. She's a molecular virologist at the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. And her job is looking out for that key warning sign that David Quammen was talking about. She studies wild mammals to try and detect when they're being infected with H5N1. It's H5N12344B. It's like it's, it's very, it just rolls off the tongue, right? Wendy told me about a moment last spring when she got an alarming phone call. It came from Linda Doherty, who runs an organization called Marine Mammals of Maine. Um, So she called me as I was pulling into my parking spot, and uh, she's like, Wendy, I I think we might have a problem. We we have some seals that are are coming in. They're showing really strong respiratory signs. Like, I'm I'm really nervous that high path has arrived uh, here in the seals. High path means high pathogenicity which means bad. Flu strains like H5N1. Honestly, this kind of felt like our, uh, our Mission Impossible moment. So I instructed her to overnight samples to me. So she has all of the supplies in-house there of the, the different vials that we need. And it's really, it's the same exact stuff that we all have used doing COVID screening. So it's, you know, they get swabbed, it goes into a viral transport media, into a little tube. But from a seal. So they're sticking like a Q-tip up the seal's nose? Uh, yes. So we, we stick Q-tips up the seal's nose. And so we do nasal samples and rectal samples, which thankfully okay. we haven't done with humans. And uh, those all came to me overnight. And we immediately ran those samples as soon as they arrived here in the lab. And we detected a really strong signal for, for the H5N1, for the high-path influenza. Wendy ran the test again, just to make sure, and she got the same result. H5N1 had made its way to seals along the coast of Maine. She sounded the alarm, notified the feds, and fortunately, this outbreak passed pretty quickly. But Wendy and other scientists are still worried about future outbreaks. Let's just talk about why this moment is a big deal. Like, why is this such an important moment? So one of the major reasons is that 
There's a lot of different forms of influenza that circulate in wildlife, but when it makes that shift into mammals, because it's usually circulating in birds, and when it shifts over into mammals, obviously we're a mammal, so that means it is one step closer to being of concern for human health and pandemic potential. It's basically, it's just getting closer to us in a biological sense. Exactly. Yeah, they're often referred to as a, as a sentinel. They're able to give us a heads up of what sort of things might be moving from birds into a, into a mammal. But not to say that the seals themselves aren't important. It's not just about the human health. Sure. So it's also that, um, you know, there was concern that it was going to have a very large impact on wildlife as well, because this is a whole new virus that is going into a species that hasn't seen this virus before. So potentially they don't have the, the immune protection in place to be able to handle that. So it's human health. It's the animal health. It's all of it. How do marine mammals get H5N1, this high path flu? That is an excellent question, and that is one of the things that we are actively still trying to find out. So there are a couple of different ways. It seems pretty clear it's coming from wild birds. So the bird is where the virus is circulating, and it spills over and makes its way into seals. So the question is, how exactly? It could be the case um, that the the seal is actually consuming a, a, an infected bird. Eating it. Yeah. Eating it, Yeah. And that's what we've seen in, in a lot of terrestrial mammals, that that seems to be how. I mean, do seals eat birds well, as a matter of course? Well, that's the In some cases, yes, but it is not. It certainly is not a common thing on their, their okay. menu. And given the number of seals that we saw with high path influenza, it seems very unlikely that each of them were having the unusual meal of a bird. So it is... It's, the highest probability in my mind is that the virus is being shed into the environment and that the seals are coming into contact with it, whether it is bird poop on the beach and they're you know, ingesting it or inhaling it that way. Or we see little bodies of water where birds are, are pooping in the water there and the seals are then hanging out in that water too. So that's certainly a possibility. I mean, it's worth noting that with birds... Uh flu unlike in humans is a is a fecal oral it's a like a gastrointestinal disease right right exactly that's an important point so in birds it's a it's a gi so it's they're they're yeah. shedding it in their feces and and that's how birds spread it to each other like like humans get some diseases that way like from drinking dirty water right uh, and that's the way flu works for birds but not for people exactly yeah so and it's possible that that's how it's getting into seals as well Okay. okay. Um, it's also possible that the seals are spreading it amongst themselves once it gets into that population. And that's something that is still being um, very actively looked at. It's not clear yet. It's not really ruled in or ruled out. I mean, you mentioned that just kind of like as one of several options, but that's a huge, huge high stakes question for people, right? Like the 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 virus going from birds to seals is way different than the virus going from mammal to mammal, right? That is a huge, huge, profoundly important public health question. It absolutely is. I'm shocked, frankly, that we don't know the answer and a little scared. Yeah, I know. But the thing is, is it's not an easy answer to get because you need a pretty sizable data set to really be able to say anything with confidence. And the number of sequences that we were able to get from viruses off of seals is a small enough number that the data is still not clear. It's not really convincing one way or the other. So, okay, that's that's the sort of abstract, high-level story. Uh, I also want to talk about your field work. Uh, as I understand, you go out and basically hang out with seals. Uh, tell me about that. 
So we have several different sites around the Gulf of Maine. The primary one that I personally go to is Monomoy, and that is off of uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. What part of the year do you go to Monomoy? The time when everybody wants to go to the islands off of Cape Cod in the middle of the winter, January and February. (laughs) Monomoy is one of my favorite places on the planet. You know, even though it's off of Cape Cod, it's very remote. There is, um, there's, there are no developments there. There's no heat, electricity, running water. The boats go and drop us off, and we have whatever food and water and safety gear we brought with us. And there is an old lighthouse there. Um, It's actually a 200-year-old lighthouse, just had its anniversary. It hasn't been operational for the last 100 years. So the the Park Service um, is very gracious in letting us use that as basically a base camp. And it's you and a few researchers, and how many SEALs? Oh, lots of SEALs. So in the region, it's estimated that there's probably about 50,000, but on Monomoy, we're talking a couple thousand at that period of time. That's a lot of SEALs. There are a lot of SEALs. (laughs) I mean... uh, What's it smell like? <laughs> so the very first time that I went out to Monomoy, and we're all geared up and we land on the beach and we start to walk over to the seals and there's this pungent smell of skunk. And I was like, oh, somebody must have been sprayed by skunk on their, like, their field clothes and we're, we're just, none of us are talking about it. So I'm, I'm just going to carry on. And then eventually I came to realize that, no, no, that musky smell, that is the smell of the seals. So it, it smells very huh. similar to skunk, <laughs> in my opinion. What do they sound like? Is it loud? Like you hear like a thousand seals going off? Um, during the day, typically not at all, um, unless they're, they're kind of bickering and fighting and having some um, territorial little battles. At nighttime, it's sort of a, a consistent low bellowing that you hear in the background while you're, while you're trying to sleep. It's actually it's quite nice ambient noise. <laughs> It does sound appealing. That sounds better than the smell, certainly. Right. So, so you're out there. Um, what do you do? We are going out and um, actually capturing pups. And we focus on the pups because they are, give or take, about 100 pounds, as opposed to the adults, which can be you know, around 800 pounds. So we're able to physically restrain the pups. And that's why we're there during January and February, because that's the pupping season. It can be somewhat comical if you didn't know what was going on. You've got a a bunch of scientists all geared up, and we are crawling through army crawl style through the the dunes to sneak up on a seal pup and put this this bag over the seal that we then capture it, and we're doing uh, sample collections. We're doing measurements to look for just the overall health of the animals, Um, and then we put a tag on them. In some cases, we put on a satellite tag so we can actually follow their movement, and then we release them. And all of that can happen in as quickly as six minutes, and then we max it out at 20 minutes. So if we hit 20 minutes, we release the seal. So when you go out in the winter and you are swabbing baby seals, like... You are doing the sentinel work. You're like out there looking for H5N1 to be the early warning system for the rest of us. Exactly. We are trying to pick up anything that might be developing the ability to go from birds to mammals and then trying uh-huh. to figure out, is that something that then presents the possibility that it could then come into humans or, you know, or other wild mammals, but mammals in general? So if... I hope not when. Let's say if someone finds a clear instance of 
H5N1 spreading from mammal to mammal. What will that mean? That is the point where we collectively need to get much more serious about preparing for it. Um, the good news with high path influenza is, as I like to say, it's it's not COVID. So it's we see it coming. We we know influenza. We have vaccines against influenza. We have um, seed stocks that are maintained to be able to rapidly grow up vaccines. So we have the capacity to respond. It's important that we continue to do very robust surveillance so that we know if or when these changes happen and what exactly they look like. Uh, I will say, after talking to you about what's happening with H5N1 and mammals, I'm certainly not not worried, but I am less worried than I was before I talked to you. Excellent. I like to think that we will be prepared for the human health side of things, that we will be prepared to respond pretty efficiently and pretty rapidly should it become a concern for human health. My bigger concern is for wildlife. That's a much okay. trickier one for us to be able to mitigate, and it could have a, a very long-lasting, very negative impact to several um, wildlife species. But I, I think from human health, we will be able to hopefully respond well. I appreciate all your time. Yeah, absolutely. One last thing. About a month after we spoke with Wendy, H5N1 was detected in seals off the coast of Washington State. It was the first time H5N1 had been detected in marine mammals off the west coast of the United States. Thanks to my guests today, David Quammen and Wendy Perrier. Next week, we'll be talking about HPV, human papillomavirus and about how the HPV vaccine explains Americans' complicated relationship to all vaccines. The HPV story is so interesting because support was coming from everywhere, but backlash was coming from everywhere, too, like all over the political spectrum. Incubation is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Ruby Studio at iHeartMedia. It's produced by Gabriel Hunter Chang, Ariella Markowitz, and Amy Gaines McQuaid. Our editors are Julia Barton and Karen Shakurji. Mastering by Anne Pope. Fact-checking by Joseph Friedman. Our executive producers are Catherine Girardot and Matt Romano. I'm Jacob Goldstein. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from GSK. Orexv, respiratory syncytial virus vaccine, adjuvanted, is a vaccine used to prevent lower respiratory disease from respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, in people 60 years and older. Vaccination with Orexv is proven through a clinical study to be over 82% effective in preventing lower respiratory disease from RSV in adults 60 years and older. Orexv does not protect everyone and is not for those with severe allergic reactions to its ingredients. Those with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. The most common side effects are injection site pain, fatigue, muscle pain, headache, and joint pain. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist to see if Orexv is right for you and learn more by calling 888-OREXV-9 or by visiting orexv.com. That's A-R-E-X-V-Y dot com. RSV? Make it Orexv.